take your Bibles and, and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, actually, we're going to begin reading uh, in verse uh, 4. And the reason for that is, is uh, the section we're going to be looking at today is really a continuation. It's an application of what we talked about last week in terms of how God disciplines and why He disciplines His people. Here now, actually beginning in verse 3. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Speaking, obviously, of Jesus. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and, and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have endured God, uh, that, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are Ill illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that you speak to your people through the reading and through the preaching of your word. And we pray that that would be the case this morning. Uh, Lord, you know where each and every one of us are. You know the, the needs of our hearts. Lord, you know where we are spiritually. And we pray, God, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit. Uh, my words can do nothing. They will fall just on the other side of this, this pulpit. Uh, but the words of life, Lord, that, that will, will change our hearts. And, and so we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in us today. That you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, that you would work in our wills to, to, to obey and to do the things that you say. That we might walk by faith. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, last week, as, as, as we were looking at uh, verses uh, 3 through 11... Uh, we saw sort of behind the scenes of what is going on as we go through the difficulties and, and the trials of our lives. 
that when those things happen, those dark times in our life, that they don't merely come by chance, nor do they come by faith, but instead God wants us to understand that He is behind all these things, that God ordains all the rough moments in a Christian's life. But He does so for a purpose. He does so for the discipline, for the training, for the equipping, for the correction of his beloved children. The author writes in Hebrews 12, 7, which we just read, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And then he goes on in verse 10, and God instructs us that he disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. So, so the reason God is disciplining us is that we might be holy. Now, we talked about what, what holiness is. Holiness is that sense of being set apart. It's being sort of set aside for a special purpose. I, I don't know if this is the best illustration. I don't even know if people still do this that much. But it used to be, uh, at least the circles I traveled in, uh, that when someone got married, they would, they would register for fine china. And, and they would get these really fancy plates that they would never use. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's not that they would never use them. But they would only use them for special occasions. They would set those aside for a special purpose. And so maybe at Thanksgiving or at a Christmas celebration or for some special event in the family, or if special company comes over, you might pull out the fine china and you might use it. And, and in somewhat that way, God has set us aside as his children for a special purpose. And, and we see in Romans 8 that that purpose is to conform us to the image of God. Let me read from Romans 8:28 and following. And it says, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for the good, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, what? To the image of his son. Now, imagine this, guys. I want you to hear this. That God is saying that part of the purpose of his salvation for you and for me is that you will think like Jesus is that the words that you speak will be like that of Jesus. That the way you act, the way you live your life, is that you will be like Jesus. I hope that encourages your, your soul this morning. That, that the Father's goal for His children is, is to keep us from sin and to develop Christ-likeness in our lives as His sons. Now, of course, that's something that doesn't happen overnight. That's something that it takes all of our lives. But, but as we keep that purpose in mind for trials and for difficulties and understand what it is that God is doing, it enables us to face everything that comes with great confidence in God, seeing His amazing love for us even in those dark times. And this is important as we're living our lives as a race, as, it, as we're living our lives with a purpose, as, as we have our eyes on the goal that He has before us. It gives us purpose beyond just our simple existence here upon this earth. 
It, it enables us to live for more than merely what is offered here upon this earth. We live for things that are eternal, things that can never be taken away from us. It doesn't matter if COVID is happening. It doesn't matter who the president of the United States is. It doesn't matter what our foreign policy as a country is. Those things are not affected by the eternal things that God gives to us. Amen? Because we are His children. But um, let's, let's be honest. You know, as is with any race, we become tired sometimes. And we become weary. And, the, and, and especially with the task that is before us. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, if you're honest, we just want to quit. Do we not? And, and it's no different in the Christian life. You know, to be holy and to live like Christ, it's good. And, and it brings a great purpose and, and joy to us as His children. But it's also hard. And, and oftentimes tiresome to, to live different from the world. To be disciplined by God is great because it shows us that we are His sons, that we are His children. But it is also at the same time very painful. And while it's true that there are no spiritual gains without spiritual pains, it's so easy to become weary in the race of life and want to quit even as, as a Christian. And that's what these Hebrew Christians were, were wrestling with. And so this morning as we look at our text, the, the author is really sort of addressing the question is, so what is our response to be to our Father's discipline as we run this race of life? What is our response to be to our Father's discipline as we run the race of life? Well, the first thing we see is, is that we are to respond with inner resolve. We are to respond with inner resolve. We must respond to the discipline of the Lord with the inner resolve to profit from the Lord's loving care in that trial. You, you see, God made us and He knows us as His children. And He knows that, that sometimes we grow weary in, in doing good. And, and that's why it's interesting to see the New Testament writers continually reminding the church not to grow weary. Galatians 6 uh, 6 9 Thessalonians 3 13 Hebrews 12 3 just to name just a few places in which the writers are writing to the people and that's why we read in verses 13 and 14 therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed now I'm no great runner Okay, but I've done enough of it in my life to know that when I'm running, you know, my arms are an important part of my run, right? You know, they're, they're moving. But, you know, as you get more tired, what happens with those hands? They begin to come down, don't they? You know, and, and then after that, then your knees get tired and you're just like, okay, let me just get home. I'm just so tired, you know. And, and, and what he's saying is, is that as Christians, it can feel like that. That that's where we can be. That we can get tired and we can be weary. And so the writer tells these believers to respond with that inner resolve as they reflect upon the, the Lord's loving care for them and their trials. This is not a, a, just a, a sort of pull, your up by, pull yourself up by your bootstrap type of theology. If guys just resolve that you can do better, what he's saying is, is what he said earlier. Put your eyes on Jesus. 
See what it is that, that, that Christ has done for you. Look at what the Father is doing for you. When you're going through those difficult times, when life is pressing in upon you, when you just want to say, God, I've had enough. I want to stop. I just can't go through any more trials. Understand He loves you. Understand that He loves you so much that He is willing to take you to this point in your life to take you to the darkest of the darkest places maybe because you need to go there so that you might grow to be like His Son. And the Father is visibly showing His love to you as His child as He brings that trial into your life. And so as we look at these commands in this section, we need to understand, like I said, that these aren't just things that we're commanded to do in our own strength, but we can do these things because God is already at work in us and through us. And so by faith, we believe God and seek to conform our lives to His Word by the power and the light that, that He gives to us through His Holy Spirit. And so He's encouraging us here to endure. Um, actually... The author is appealing back to Isaiah uh, chapter 35. If you want to turn to Isaiah 35 and verse 3 and 4, uh, let me just read this for you. It gives us a little bit of picture of what the Israelites are, are going through as the prophet speaks. He says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Same language we see in Hebrews. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. He will come and He will save you. You can see here that God's people are, are sore oppressed, that their enemies are coming against them and they, they don't know what to do. And so they're becoming very anxious, they're becoming very weak and weary in, in waiting, and yet... Isaiah prophesies that God will come in his salvation. And so Isaiah is encouraging his people that God will come, he will save you. And, and that's an encouragement not only for those in Isaiah's time and for Hebrews and those in the days of the writing of this book to the Hebrews, but also to us as well today, the assurance that God is, is working out his salvation uh, in our lives. He's preserving us in the race as we run the way of holiness. But, but I want you to see something here in this um, that's really bound up in these two verses. Um, it's not only the idea of lifting up our drooping hands and, and our weak knees, but uh, as, the, uh, as the English Standard Version sort of insinuates where he talks about your hands, your knees, and your feet, we might think that's speaking to us. However, if, you, if you're reading in another translation, maybe the New American Standard, for example, it talks about the hands, the knees, and the feet. Okay, And the Greek word that's used here is used many times in the New Testament, but only a few times does it mean your. And, uh, uh, and I would suggest to you that probably the better translation is the feet, the hands, and the knees. And, and what it's saying here is, is it's not only your hands and your needs that need to be strengthened, but those of others as well. We are to lift up the hands we see drooping, whether they're ours or whether they're our neighbors. We need to strengthen the knees we see weakening. It may be ours, but it might be those that, that are sitting around us today in worship. 
Uh, and the authors already uh, sort of brought in this idea of mutual edification in the church throughout the book of Hebrews. In chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another. That means encourage, maybe sometimes even rebuke uh, each other. Uh, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or later on in chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, that's interesting language, isn't it? Stir up. It sort of implies that, that, that maybe... That, that love and good works isn't being done. And so, but God wants to use us in, as an instrument in someone else's life to sort of stir them up, to get them to be doing what the Lord has saved them to do. And he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the church is not a bunch of individuals we're a family, brothers and sisters. We are a family. Okay, we, we, are, we are here for one another. And in all this, uh, yes, we are to examine our lives, and we are to see where we are spiritually. And, and I think it's very helpful if we would compare where you are now with where you were a year ago. And let me just ask you some questions. As you think about that, of where you were a year ago spiritually and where you are today, are you drifting? Are, are you slowing down spiritually? Are you weakening in your attempt in, in to run the race? Are, are, are your knees wobbling? Uh, you know, are, are you tempted to sort of go off the track? Or, or are you making straight paths? That idea of making straight paths means level ground. It means to get rid of the hindrances that are there. You know, the obstacles to your walk with the Lord. But brothers and sisters, we could ask those same questions of those around us as well. You know, um, as we think about our brothers and sisters here at Kirk of the Plains, are they drifting? Are they slowing down? Are they weakening in their attempt to run the race? Do you know of those in our congregation whose knees are weak, whose hands are drooping, who, who needs uh, our encouragement? We are called to intercede for them but also to put our nose in their business in the name of Christian love. You know, we sometimes feel very timid about that. We're like, who am I to do that? Pastor Rick, you can do that. You're paid. You're an elder. Jeff can do that because Jeff's an elder of our church, and, and, and he could do that. But me, I'm just a Christian. But the reality is, is that's who God has saved us to do. And, and the gospel calls us to that sense of action. But we are not only to have that resolve, but we also are to respond with a peaceful heart and pursue holiness. Look at verse 14. Uh, we, you know, it seems like brothers and sisters, whenever we are suffering, especially through attacks from others, and I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you where, where people are actually ridiculing you, mocking you for, for your faith. Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. But, but when... When that is happening and you are suffering at the hands of other people, there's probably no greater temptation for us than try to defend ourselves. 
and, and try to justify ourselves in the eyes of others. And we can be tempted to complain how unfairly we are being treated um, and, and, and also be tempted to speak ill of others, sort of to defend ourselves. So no wonder the writer says to us in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, it's interesting to see the two things that he mentions. Why do you, why do you think he mentions peace and holiness? Well, I would suggest to you that peace has to do with our relationship with each other. Okay, we're striving for peace with one another. But then he also talks about the striving for holiness, which really talks about our vertical relationship with the Lord. So let's look at each one of those. First of all, responding with peace. Christians are commanded to live peacefully with the people around them. Uh, we are, in essence, to be peacemakers, brothers and sisters. I mean, that's actually what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Rome in Romans 12, 18. And he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, that's, that's talking about with those in the church, with those outside the church. Psalm 34, 14. We read, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Don't just sort of want peace in your life. Be pursuing peace. We'll, we'll talk about that more. It, it sort of reminds me of an illustration I read of the Chinese evangelist Watchman Nee. Uh, he tells us uh, the story of a Christian who had a rice field and uh, he lived at the top of this hill and the irrigation stream was at the bottom of the hill. And he had to, by hand, had to pump all that water up the hill to his farm and his fields. But the problem was, is he had a neighbor that was actually down the hill from him. And his neighbor was sort of dishonest and he sort of put a hole in the system so that when this Christian pumped water, Actually, the water would go into the neighbor's field instead of the Christian. Well, the, the Christian tried to be very gracious and, and understanding, but he just didn't know what to do anymore. So he went to his brothers in Christ, and he says, Guys, what should I do? You know? He said, uh, you know, this is what my neighbor is, is doing. He goes, isn't it right for me to confront him on what it is that he's doing? Well, the Christians prayed. And then one of them said, you know, it's surely our duty to live in such a way as to be a blessing with others and to be at peace with them. And so the next day, what this Christian did was he went and he pumped water into his neighbor's field first. And then he took the time then to pump the water into his own field. Well, uh, over time, his neighbor noticed this and he asked him why he was acting this way. Why would you do this when I've been so ruthless towards you. And, and he explained why. Well, as a result of that, these two neighbors developed a relationship and eventually that neighbor became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because this Christian pursued peace. And this is the kind of attitude our passage encourages us to have, both with believers and unbelievers, to put peace uh, with to have peace with our neighbors, and to put that peace ahead of our own rights and our own privileges. That's oftentimes what we struggle with. 
We see our rights and we want justice rather than seeking peace. And, and I just think about the, the culture in which we live now and just the hostility that is out there that we see in social media and so many other places. And it makes me wonder, you know, what, it, what it, would it be like if as Christians we sought peace from those who were reviling us and those who were saying all kinds of evil against us? <clears throat> because God designs our pain for our own good and for our growing and holiness, you know, we need to be careful not to see our struggles and our afflictions as ultimately coming from other people. In other words, we must not see people as our enemy. Whenever someone is, is treating us incorrectly and wrongly, uh, we must not look to them as the cause, as if they're the enemy. Besides, if what is happening to us is good, in the sense that it, it comes from God, then, then we must understand that the people in our lives that are causing us difficulties, that, that they are merely instruments of our pain. But God has designed all that happens in our lives for, for good and for holiness. And so we need to be careful and to ask ourselves, why should we strike back then at individuals? Why should we wage personal wars against those whose imperfections are designed by God to strengthen our character through our endurance and to produce steadfastness in our lives that finally gives us hope? We're not. We're because God is at work in us. You see, the world will not always strive to live at peace with us. I mean, Jesus tells that in John 15. However, we are to strive to live at peace with all people, uh, even those in the world. But, but sometimes it's easier to, to be at peace with the people in the world than sometimes people in the church, which is, is hard to, uh, to fathom sometimes, because we expect conflict in the world, but how unexpected and disheartening it is whenever there's conflict with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, therefore, as we think about this idea of peace, I want us to understand that the writer is saying here to strive. He is, he, he's saying, in essence, to make every effort to pursue peace. And, and these two phrases are rather aggressive phrases. You know, it's, it's a lot like a hound, uh, a dog chasing after its prey. We are to chase after peace. We are to pursue it. Uh, don't let it escape you in any situation, brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying to us in our text today. But for that to happen, this sometimes means that we must swallow our pride and our compulsive need to win every argument. Do you know people like that? You might say, well, actually, Pastor Rick, I'm sort of that kind of person. You know, I, I like to interact with people, but I want to make sure that I win the argument. But sometimes we have to give that up for peace. That doesn't mean that we compromise the truth, you know, in the name of peace. It's not like we give up our theology or whatever for that. Um, but we need to understand that most things over which we part company with others oftentimes truly are not all that important in light of eternity. And, and so... We need to pursue peace. But he also tells us that we need to pursue holiness. Uh, the Christian life is, is not only focused on our relationship with other people, but also on God as well. And the author calls his readers to pursue holiness. Actually, you know, we've already talked about what holiness is, 
But here, actually, the word that's used is oftentimes translated sanctification. It is that sense of dying to, to sin and living to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to us as believers, we are to seek holiness the same way we are to seek peace. It's sort of that doggedness, that aggressive way in which we are seeking our sanctification that we are pursuing that righteousness. And of course, these words refer to the process by which Christians are freed from the power of sin and transformed into being godly men and women. And of course, the great work of sanctification is God's work in us, but it is also um, a work in which we actively participate. And he says in verse 14, that that dual striving includes peace with men and holiness before God, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, why is that true? Why is it that someone won't see the Lord if, if they don't have that holiness? Well, because holiness or sanctification is not an option for believers. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, we read, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Or from sin. In other words, if you're a believer, if you're saying you're a believer, then you are to depart from iniquity and sin. And and what he's trying to get at is, is that there's a while there is a distinction between justification and sanctification, justification talks about you know how we enter into that relationship with God, that we are justified, you know, by faith uh, in Jesus Christ, right? But once we come to faith in Christ, uh, we are to grow. Those two things can't be separated. Uh, you can't be justified and yet not sanctified, nor can you be sanctified until you are justified. And so when we become Christians, there's, that, there's this new principle that works in our hearts. God changes us. He makes us different. And you go, well, Rick, duh. You know, I've, I've heard that uh, from the time I've been this size in Sunday school. And that's true, but brothers and sisters, I would tell you that I think even through all this COVID stuff, God is beginning to show us that we don't really grasp that. And there are many people, some who have even abandoned coming to church and stuff, you know, and, and, and have, you know, uh, been living a life that, you know, maybe is not honoring to the Lord. And there's not a sense of carefulness, a sense of growing in their sanctification. And yet, if you confront them, if you say, brother, sister, are you doing okay? Their response is, well, it's okay, I'm a believer. I prayed a prayer. This, this has happened. And there's a sense in which they don't realize it, but in their mind, they're standing on a justification with no sanctification. And the Bible says, that's not a thing. It doesn't happen that way. That if we are justified, God will cause us to grow and we will be sanctified. And so that's why it's, he says that without holiness, we will not see the Lord. Because it's only with those who God has justified that he will sanctify. The third thing uh, is that we are to respond with opposition to everything that hinders that sanctification, that holiness. We are to come against anything that, that um, hinders that sanctification. The call to holiness is a call to be careful 
uh, in our Christian living. It's a call to be rid of all that opposes the holiness um, to which we are called. The writer of Hebrews actually mentions three things in verse 15 and 16 that we need to be careful about. First of all, failing to obtain grace. Uh, sort of the writer's overarching concern, uh, not only here in this text, but really throughout the book of Hebrews, is uh, just the fact of these Christians dropping out of the race. Just walking away from Christ and saying, I no longer believe in him. And, and the author, he's expressed that concern about apostasy a number of times in chapters 2, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 10, you know, throughout the book of Hebrews. And, and this reminds us that while the Bible teaches us that all true Christians are secure in God's saving work, because as Peter tells us, we are kept by God's power, the Bible also teaches the reality of our faith, excuse me, teaches that the reality of our faith is proved by our perseverance to the end. In other words, we're not, we're, we don't persevere to the end by our own strength. It is only by the strength of God that we can persevere to the end. So as you see someone continuing to walk with the Lord, you know that it has to be the Lord that is at work in them. And, and so that's where our confidence will be. So if you're here this morning and, and you are weak, you should draw comfort from this. Jesus says of his true sheep in John 10, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that's true. But, but if your Christian life is superficial, perhaps you should be concerned. For this makes clear that there are many who make a profession of faith in Christ and yet fall back from God's grace, especially when things get tough. But verse 15 includes an, an antidote for this danger. Uh, he says in, at the beginning of verse 15, see to it, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace. That command is in the plural. So it's actually a command to the entire body of Christ. And once again, we go back to what we said before. It's a communal thing that we are responsible for one another in, in, in our spiritual walk. Uh, one early Greek commentator described that term in terms of a band of travelers on a journey and the need to check ever so often to make sure that everyone's still there. That's what God's called us to as Christians, that we are to walk the race, but we are to stop periodically and to look around and to make sure that those who are part of the church, those who profess faith in Christ, are, are still with us. Uh, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning to, to look around this morning, the congregation. It's okay. You can look around. I gave you permission. Okay. And not only see who's here, but who's not here. Um, and, and to ask yourself, has anyone disappeared from our church? I know there's some folks that are not here today because they're ill. I'm not talking about that. But maybe people you haven't seen in a while. Has, has anyone been left behind while the rest of us are pressing on? He, he commands us, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, I'm not saying that if someone's not here, they don't have the grace of God. Okay, please don't hear me say that. But brothers and sisters, you can become detached from the church. You can be gone for a while and it puts you in a very dangerous place. 
And Satan can oftentimes get a foothold. And, and all I'm saying is, is that he tells us here that we are to be here for one another and to encourage one another. We're to look around on our journey and say, is everybody still here? Rather than just pressing on. The second thing he's, he warns us against is a, a root of bitterness. He says, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, he's not talking about someone whose life is characterized by bitterness. You probably know people like that, and that is a real thing. But that's not what he's referring to here. Uh, actually, this is an allusion to Deuteronomy 29. If you want to look at Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18, uh, Moses is, is speaking, and, and this is what he says. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning today or turning away today from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. You see, the, the danger is that a group might arise, uh, in this case, in the, the community of the Israelites, but today in the church to promote unbiblical teaching and practices. It may be someone whose heart has turned away from the Lord. And, and such a root is not just bitter, but it's poisonous as it draws people away from the Lord. But it also affects others in the church as well. Notice here that the concern is the same as in the first one with grace. It's a matter of apostasy. Are these folks apostatizing? And, uh, but this time it's because of the heresy in the church. And this is why we need oversight when it comes to teaching and practice in the church. Uh, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 3, he said, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In other words, the gospel. Um, so they needed that oversight. The third thing, the danger that we see is sensuality in verse 16. Uh, a, a sensuality and godless pattern that causes people to turn away from that which is eternal to, to worldly things. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, those two terms, sexually immoral and unholy, describe sort of an attitude about that which uh, pursues carnal fleshly things. It's things that wants to satisfy the desires, the, the natural desires and lust of your heart. It could be sexual things, as he mentions here, but it could be other things as well. And, and that you see that sense of desiring these earthly things rather than the spiritual blessings of God. Of course, this attitude's all around us in our culture today. I don't need to convince you that. You look at billboards, TV shows, get on the internet, whatever. You see that kind of, you know, satisfying your own thirst and that kind of those slogans all around us. But one example that we see in Scripture is, is Esau. Esau was sensually oriented, which is why he took pagan wives and grieved his parents. But, but even worse, his sensuality caused him to trade his birthright. That is, the covenant of salvation with the Lord. All of that for a bowl of stew. Because it was more important to satisfy his hunger 
than, than to hold on to that which God had given to him. Later on, when Esau desired to be blessed by his father Isaac, then he was rejected. And Esau begged his father with tears, but there was no blessing for him. But, but it's interesting to see because it, it appears that Esau was really not repentant over his sin, just the fact that he didn't get the blessing, that he didn't, it was just the consequences of his sin. And so brothers and sisters, as, as we look at this, as we look at that, our response, you know, uh, to, to endure, as, as we look at that uh, call uh, in the light of God's discipline to pursue peace and, and holiness, as we, as we look and we see that we are to get rid of any obstacles that, you know, hinder our sanctification, our holiness, there, there's several pastoral lessons in this section. I just want to mention them very briefly in closing. First, grace produces effort. Okay? Grace produces effort. Where the Word of God is applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, the true believer will care about growth and grace and will actively pursue it. That's what you'll see in the life of believers. You'll see them bearing fruit. You'll see them living in godliness. Now, not perfectly. They will struggle with sin, but, but you will see them laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. You will see them running with endurance the race that's set before them. You'll see them looking to Jesus. You'll see them uh, as uh, you know, lifting their drooping hands and strengthening their weak knees and striving in peace. There's always that sense of God's grace. Um, um, producing that effort that's in us. Second, uh, we only benefit from discipline by giving attention to God's Word. We only benefit from God's discipline by giving attention to, to God's Word. Uh, only when we listen to the Word preached and read and we meditate on it will we see discipline as, as a welcome blessing. Otherwise, when we get in the midst of those dark times and those difficult times in our lives, we can be tempted to become confused and cynical, uh, maybe even unbelieving in the midst of our trials. And we're saying, God, why are you doing this? When are you going to stop this? And we begin to focus upon ourselves. Because there's just sort of this subtle temptation that we can fall into relying upon our own logic and our own way of thinking. But that's why it's so important uh, that we understand what God says, that we understand His interpretation of the facts that are going on in our lives. And then third and finally, we need to live before the face of God, quorum Deo. If we are to pursue holiness of life single-heartedly, we must do so with a view to pleasing God and not ourselves or others. You know, we have to be sort of like that musician who is up on the stage and there's all these people in the audience, but that musician is only wanting to satisfy one person, and that's their teacher. You know, any of you that, that teach or coach or anything like that can appreciate this. You know, they're just wanting to satisfy their, their teacher. And, and nothing will so derail us in the pursuit of holiness than caring what people think more than what God thinks. And God's word must be our focus if we're going to seek to live our lives to please God. We must stop seeking to control God's word. And brothers and sisters, I think that's a real temptation. That we can be looking at God's word and we can decide, yeah, I think I'll believe that. That there is so so that I like that. I'll do that too, or whatever. And there's a sense in which we're sort of gauging 
what we want to bring into our lives in terms of what God's Word says. And we might say, you know, God, I, I don't mind doing this, but now you're dealing with my entertainment. Lord, I don't want to really change the movies I watch. You know, even though your Word says this, and there's that sense of, of seeking to control God's Word instead of seeking to be controlled by God's Word. The greatest of all God's servants are those who bow before God's Word, whether it be Paul or David or Luther or Calvin. They were jealous to humble themselves in the dust before God's Word. And if possible, they would have gone even lower. Uh, may, it, uh, may that is God's Word reign over their hearts and their lives. And that's where we are called to be this morning as we walk the Christian walk, that we submit to the Lord and His discipline, responding in a way that would glorify and, and enjoy Him. Let's take just a moment this morning, if we could, and, and bow our, our hearts as we uh, meditate on God's Word. so much for the word that you have given to us that God you you understand us you understand the, the things that we go through as we encounter um, the difficulties in our lives Lord those, those things that uh, really uh, challenge us those things God that that press hard upon us those things God that we don't understand and sometimes can bring confusion into our lives we thank you that you love us enough that you said, son, let me sit down and explain to you why I'm doing what I'm doing. And son, this is how I want you to respond in those times. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you have given us this word. And we pray that we would take it to heart. Lord, that we would also, Father, not only for ourselves, but for, for others as well. We pray, God, that you would use us as instruments in the lives of other people in our congregation. That, that we could encourage, Lord, that we could even go and we could chase after the lost sheep that, that is out there. Uh, to bring them home, Lord, in, in your name. Uh, Father, we just thank you uh, that all of this stuff is possible because of the Lamb who pursued us. The Lamb who was slain, the sacrifice on our behalf. Oh, Lord, cause us to love you more, we pray in your name. Amen.